Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. What we're doing every time we gather around Scripture with the kingdom of God is we're praying the Lord's Prayer together. The reason is is that the epicenter of the prayer is asking God that his kingdom would come to earth. You know, there's no prayer for you to get to heaven. There's a prayer about heaven coming here because we need it. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. This then is how you should pray out loud together. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come Your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. Before I read from the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, where we look at the testing of Jesus, um, just wanted to tell you about an experience I had yesterday, an experience I had today. So yesterday, um, I got up, was kind of going through my daily routine, and then I kind of stepping into life, and it's kind of a little bit of a more chill day for at least the morning. And I discovered, unannounced to me, that it was deep cleaning day at the Hartwig house, just totally unannounced, which I think is sinful, but we'll debate that later. That should have been announced, and I'd have found a funeral to perform or something, so I could... Anyway, so I wake up and going through my day, and all of a sudden, I'm involved in the deep cleaning of our house, right? And so here we are, and not only was it deep cleaning day, but it was move furniture day to make the house look better, right? So the good news is I did have stuff I had to do at the church in the afternoon. So I served with all of my heart. And the reality of it is, though, is when I came back into the house last night after being out, I'll tell you that the house looked absolutely gorgeous. My wife and my daughter, after I had left, had rearranged furniture. They had worked extremely hard. And it looked beautiful. And not only that, it was incredibly clean. How many of you like a house like that? How many of you do not have a house like that right now? There we go. Now, one of the things that I had learned before I come back to the cleaning story is I once heard a a lady who had really achieved a lot in life, and she had these little tidbits and of wisdom. She was the CEO of a large company. And she said something once in a podcast that stuck with me. Never forgot it. And it was this, if you can do a task in 90 seconds, do it. And here's what she meant. Things like a house. If you in 90 seconds can put your dishes in the dishwasher, do it. If you can put your clothes in the hamper, do it. If there there are certain things, if it only takes 90 seconds, do it because it takes longer to do it later. And when I heard that wisdom, I said, I'm going to live that some of the time. I'm going to live that, right? But I have found that actually there's a lot of wisdom, 90 seconds, quicker to do it now than later. 
But here's what all of us know. Our house, when it was done, and you probably have heard the same talk in your family, someone will pipe up and go, you know what, the house looks awesome. Everyone goes, yes. And then the next comment is, we're going to live by the certain set of rules to keep it this way. How many of you have ever heard that lecture, right? And it's from now on, we're all going to do this. And everyone goes, oh, you know, you have to say yes, because someone's pretty excited about these new rules, but you're thinking in the back of your mind, we've heard this conversation a thousand times and within a, in a month, it's all forgotten. Now, the other thing is this, um, I'm convinced that if you had taken our house clean and rearranged and locked it, and we'd have come back two weeks later, it would have been messy when we got home. Because that's how life is. And it takes a ton of work and effort to keep life ordered. It's a lot of work. And if you go to sleep at the wheel, I trust you disorders coming. We live in a fallen, broken world. I had an experience this morning where, full confession, I love driving to City Church on Sunday mornings. I love it. My entrance into the city brings me over Pantops Mountain, and when you come over Pantops early in the morning when the sun is just waking up the world, and the Blue Ridge Mountains are there, and it's absolutely beautiful. I have, I've lived here 25 years, never once gotten tired of looking at the Blue Ridge Mountains. Anyone else like me? Just gorgeous. But here's the reason why I also like Sunday mornings. It's because when I come to church, they time the traffic lights so I hit nothing but green. And you have a feeling of God's blessing and empowerment when you're driving through green light after green light after green light. And I'm doing that this morning. It's just this God moment. It's like all's right with the world and the power of the Spirit is with me. And how do I know? Green light, green light, green light, green light. And I'm driving and I'm having this God moment. And then something catches my vision right in front of my face. And it's a mosquito. Like in the middle of a God moment, there's a mosquito. And have you ever tried to kill a mosquito while driving? <laughs> Hopefully no one's looking because I hate mosquitoes. Some of you, when you get to heaven, you're going to walk in and say, God, I have four questions. And the first one's going to be, how did you really create Eve from Adam? How did that actually happen? It's going to be deep and theological. My first question is going to be, why mosquitoes? That's my first, I despise mosquitoes. So I'm driving, and there's this mosquito. It's doing what it wants to do, or trying to do what it's, to suck blood, my blood. And I'm driving, and I had this very manly moment where I punched it into the windshield. Just boom. And I literally was going to take a photograph and put that up there just to show you that that, but my wife, nah, not a good idea. She said that's probably a really bad idea. So I didn't take the picture of it. But the point I'm trying to make is this. In the best of our God moments, we're getting green light after green light. The beauty of God's creation. And God has created an incredible world. There's mosquitoes. In a house that's perfectly in order. If people are going to be in it, it's going to get messy. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. Because in the midst of Jesus' life, what we discover is he, being God in the flesh, faces some things, and we will too. We're going to face them too. 
And so Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, tells us an abbreviated reality of the beginning of Jesus before he steps into the earthly ministry. Mark 1, 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you, I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. That Greek word is forced him, compelled him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. What happens next, just so you know, in all the Gospels is Jesus goes out, he's tempted or tried, he's tested, he exits that testing, and he always announces the kingdom, always. And then the next thing that he does is he recruits people to partner with him in seeing the kingdom come and God's will being done in this world. Nothing has changed. Every time a woman or a man opens their heart to Jesus and says yes. Every time he calls you to partner with him in seeing God's kingdom come in the world. That's our call. That's our purpose. And so what we find is he announces the good, word, good news and then he calls his first disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and his brother John. Now what's interesting to note is that here, Mark assumes you know the story of Jesus' testing. But what I know is not all of us will know the story. All he does is mention it, assuming you know it. But some of us don't. We have people who are looking over the wall at faith. We have some who are newer to faith. Some who've journeyed with years but have never really been like deep in Scripture. And so what I want us to do is take an in-depth look at the temptation of Jesus... But the reason is, is this. There is an assumption in the biblical story that the testing of Jesus is an event that will be common in the life of every person who follows him. I want to repeat that. There is the assumption in the biblical story, because it appears in all the Gospels, that the testing of Jesus is an event that will be common in the life of every person who follows Jesus. Now, now what we're going to do is we're going to read the whole story from Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. When we're done, I'm going to give more of some devotional thoughts, and then we'll close in prayer. But before we get into our story, I want us to step into it with the following lens. Following lens. Some of you right now are in the middle of your education. At some point when you exit your education, this has happened to all of my kids, but when you exit your education, your education is completed, you will step into a job. It's coming. There's actually a job in your future. Now, some of us have already walked this path, and this is going to be very, you're going to remember this. What you'll do is you'll step into some context and you will meet with human resources. You'll meet with HR and they're going to give you the on-ramp to coming to work for them. Now, that's an important piece. It's very important. But 
if you are truly blessed, someone where you are new and working is gonna put their arm around you, and in putting their arm around you, they're going to say something like this. Now, here's the three people here you need to get to know. There's Judy sitting at that desk. She knows more than the CEO. He doesn't think she knows more than him, but she does. Get to know Judy, right? And then they're going to say, and then there's this guy, Joe. Joe's the best. He's a great guy. You can always go to Joe and ask for help. And then they'll say, there's another guy, and his name is Carl. And Carl's awesome. And Carl, you understand where I'm going with this? Like, how many of you on the job have had, ever had some God-blessed person do that for you? And aren't you grateful for that? By the way, be that person on your job. As a person in the kingdom, be that person. Don't ever speak ill of anyone. Put your arm around people, though, and go, here's the people you need to get. These are the people, right? Now, what you'll discover is, is that that type of a person is an absolute godsend. And if you'll listen and humble yourself and step into what they're saying, man, it just gets you over hurdles very, very quickly. I've been blessed because every context I've been in, someone put their arm around me and gave me that talk. When I was first hired at City, I was 33 years old, and this old, older gentleman put his arm around me, and we walked through this building, and he told me the things and the people that it would be important to get to know. I'm forever grateful for him. Now, I want us to start into the story we're reading with that in mind. What's happening is in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, the writer is putting their arm around us and they're stepping into the ministry and the life of Jesus and saying, here's, what you, here's the people you need to know. That's what's happening. So picture that. Look at the very first sentence of Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus... What Matthew's trying to tell you, these are the three realities you need to get. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There's your three personages. You need to know them. If the kingdom is going to work, you have just had the gospel writer put his arm around you and say, here's who you need to know. You must get to know these three individuals. You've got Jesus, the Spirit, and the devil. Reading on. After fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, just very quickly, just, you know, in the original language, that word for if... Kind of the way it's set up with the verbs and the nouns is presenting somewhat of a challenge. What the adversary is doing is coming to Jesus saying, you know, I just heard God say that you're his son. I heard it too. And if you are X, it's a challenge. It's like saying if you're a really good chess player and someone walks up to you and says, if you're really good at chess, you'll play me. It's, it's a challenge. So the adversary is challenging what God has said to Jesus about Jesus. 
All right, so let's pick up our reading and let's go on. If you are the Son of God. So the adversary heard God speak from heaven and point to Jesus and say, that's my son. Now the adversary shows up and goes, if. It's a challenge. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. In other words, if God was really good and you were truly his son, why are you hungry? Reading on, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms. The gospel is about kingdoms. That's what it's about. It's about the kingdom of God and all the other kingdoms that the world will present. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. They look really shiny on the surface. They're extremely attractive. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Quick aside. I want you to notice what the adversary does. He takes Jesus up really high and he shows them the kingdoms, but you can't see human suffering and dysfunction and brokenness and chaos from 30,000 feet. All you see is the splendor. I will never forget, my parents lived in Sao Paulo, Brazil when I was in college, and they flew me and my brother over there to visit them. And as we flew over Sao Paulo, Brazil, it was about 11 p.m. at night, and that city was so massive, and it literally stretched. You could see the lights of the city stretching from horizon to horizon, and it was awesome to look at. But the next morning, I woke up and drove through the city. And it was broken. You see, the adversary, Jesus is high, can't see the suffering. Only the splendor, only the lights glistening from horizon to horizon. Reading on, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. Now, here are some brief devotional thoughts before we close. Number one, the Bible is comfortable talking about evil and about how evil is a real personage who is against God's best for us. Scripture repeatedly gives evil an actual voice that has a lot to say about God's relationship to us. Please know that. The Bible sets up a reality where what you can see with your eyes is not all that there is. There is another world that's as real as the one that you can see, and the Bible's comfortable talking about it. That you've got the beauty of the natural world, but you've also got this personage behind the scenes that is evil that will speak to you about your relationship with God. When I think about that, there's a text that comes to my mind often. Because if you're like I am, there are times where that voice 
will speak to me about God's reality in my life. Romans 8, 38 through 39, Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, in other words, the unseen world, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know that there are women and men sitting here that need to hear that verse because it's true. It's true. Now, when we look at what Jesus is doing, and you look at Jesus, he's in the water. He's coming out of what's a very chaotic reality with brokenness and dysfunction. It's all around him. People are repenting of their sins in the Jordan River. Jesus is literally in the middle of chaos, and he steps into the Jordan River. He steps into the water. The Holy Spirit, the text tells us, comes down, and then a voice from heaven speaks over him and speaks into his life. And then Jesus exits out of the water. He's going to partner with God, and then he's tested. That's the movements of what Jesus went through. For those of you who are interested in a deeper biblical reality to this story, I want us to think about the following. In the Bible, the deepest truths are taught as patterns. They're not overt. They don't lie on the surface. The way the Bible is written is there are deep, deep truths that you dig for and you find them. And one of them is patterns. Now, some of us are familiar with the patterns, and you may, or at least one pattern, you might not know it. The Bible just told us that Jesus was tempted for how many days? 40. Does the number 40 sound familiar to you if you've read the Older Testament? Yes. Israel was in the wilderness being tested for how many? 40 years. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he's in God's presence for how many days? 40. You see, what's happening here is Jesus, 40 days, ought to take you back to an Older Testament pattern. There's echoes in the Newer Testament of the Older, and it's drawing you to think about the stories that you know. Now, there's another pattern in the Bible that's amazing, and that is the first two chapters of the Bible are rewritten in the last two chapters of the Bible. The end of Revelation and the beginning of Genesis connect to each other. The Bible is a whole story that interconnects to itself. Now, any Jewish Bible scholar is going to tell you the following. There is a pattern that repeats itself numerous times in the Older Testament, and I'm going to give you the pattern. Here's the pattern. Chaos, water, Spirit over the water, God speaks, expected order, and then testing. Here's the pattern. Chaos, water, spirit over the water, God speaks, expected order, and testing. I'm going to just pitch this to you. How many of us, maybe, and I want you to shout it out, can you think of Older Testament's stories where this pattern exists? Creation. Where else? Think? Noah. Where else? 
Jonah, where else? That's Newer Testament. Best name in the Bible other than Jesus, but that's New Testament. If you look in the Older Testament, you would find Israel going from Egypt into the Promised Land follows this pattern. This pattern repeats itself over and over and over again. In the creation story, you have chaos, then you have water. Then you have the spirit over the water, then God speaks. Then when God speaks, he basically begins to partner with someone in the midst of that. They step out of that and they are tried. They go through a trial. So again, there's this pattern in the Older Testament. Now I want you to think about Jesus. Jesus is in the middle of chaos with everyone repenting. He's in the water. What did the text tell us? The spirit came down, God spoke, and now there's the expectation of someone partnering with God to bring God's order in the world, and then he's tested. I want you to catch this. Now, for someone that understands that pattern, and you've seen it in the Older Testament, and all of a sudden you see Jesus standing in water and the spirit hovering, you go, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Every time people do this, they fail. And chaos continues. Every time. From Moses to Noah to Joshua to Israel to the creation story with Adam and Eve, there's always failure and more chaos. And so you brace yourself. And suddenly, there's a guy that goes through all the steps and does not fail. He doesn't fail. For the first time ever, someone goes through this pattern and comes out victorious. And when they're tested, they don't fall. They actually stand in the test. And then they exit the test and they partner with God to bring God's kingdom into this world. And the first thing Jesus does in all the gospels after he goes through the testing is he immediately goes out, announces the kingdom of God, and then looks for people to partner with him in bringing the kingdom. You see, in the testing of Jesus, there's this incredible reality where God is redeeming a series of events that have always ended in chaos. Next devotional thought. The devil creates chaos and disorder, and Jesus provides order out of chaos so that life can flourish. John 10.10, 10. the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and life to the full. How do we put feet to our faith? First of all, know this. How many of you wish God would speak very loudly to you? Brace yourself. When God speaks loudly into a life, the enemy of our soul is soon to follow. That's a pattern in the Bible. Next, there is an assumption that all of us will go through a time of testing. Next, God has always been looking for people who will partner with him in seeing his kingdom come into the world. And then lastly, could it be that your life could use a deeper dependence on the leading of the Spirit and a working knowledge of the Scripture? Because I want you to notice what Jesus does. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
And the adversarial voice begins to question God's goodness to him. And Jesus does something that's very fascinating. He only quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And the reason why he does it is because he knows that the devil knows that he knows that he is retracing these phases that we mentioned earlier. And so all he does is use the text that Israel had in the wilderness. He doesn't grab from anywhere else. Jesus only quotes from Deuteronomy. And he basically is saying to the enemy and to us, if we have scripture and we have a few scriptures that we know and we hide in our minds and our hearts, then we will be able to partner with God even when tempted and tried. Let's stand together as we close. And if you're comfortable doing this, just kind of put your hands up in front of you. It's a sign of receptivity and surrender before God. Jesus, here we are in your presence. Some of us are in the midst of testing. By the power of your spirit, let your scriptures come alive in us and through us. For those of us that are in the midst of victory, Lord, help us to use this season of victory to strengthen ourselves. God, help us as women and men to be open to the leading of your spirit. God, help us to partner with you in seeing your kingdom come and your will being done in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Lord, when we're tempted, I pray that we would cling to the one. When we're tested, I pray that we would cling to the one who came through this and did so successfully. 